This episode is brought to you by the American Distilling Institute's annual judging of craft spirits. When this episode drops, we'll be less than a week away from the deadline for the early bird submissions discount where you can enter your spirits to be assessed and judged, blind, by a panel of experts, just like yours truly, against other spirits from the U.S. and around the world. These days, it seems like there's a spirits competition popping up just about every month. And let me tell you, that means most of them aren't very well organized, and they're probably not doing the right kind of vetting when it comes to the quality of their judges and the feedback that they provide to distillers. ADI has been at this for longer than almost all spirits competitions in the U.S., and I can personally attest to the rigor of their processes, their data collection, and the extremely high quality of the panels who assess these spirits. Head over to distilling.com or send me an email to learn how you can get an early bird discount for your spirits submissions. Now, on to the show. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 277 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Devin Trevathan of Liba Spirits, which is a nomadic distilling company that roves around the world distilling and bottling the most exciting flavors from a patchwork of cultures and landscapes. But before we take you on a jet-setting journey through gin, rum, and genre-bending aperitivi, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. Inspired by Devin's travels in Europe, this episode's featured cocktail is Jägertee, which is an Austrian winter warmer cocktail. Is it 70 degrees here in Washington, D.C. as I write this? Yes. But we'll just pretend that we're having normal January weather and that the planet's not trying to kill us. To make a batch of Jägertee, you'll need 250 mLs or one cup of tea. Your choice here, but I'd recommend using something black as opposed to like a green or a white. 250 mLs or one cup of spiced rum. Austrian Stroh rum is traditional, but any spiced rum will do. 250 mLs or one cup of red wine, completely up to you, your choice. 250 mLs or one cup of plum brandy or schnapps or some kind of liqueur that you think will be a good pairing with the tea and the rum you've selected and 250 mLs or one cup of orange juice. Then you're also gonna need two or three whole cloves, one cinnamon stick, a couple of lemon slices, and a little bit of sugar to taste. This depends on how sweet the other ingredients that you add happen to be. Combine all of these ingredients in a medium saucepan over low to medium heat, warm the mixture gradually until it just begins to simmer, then cut the heat, Strain out the solids, or maybe don't, you do you, and enjoy. Jaeger tea means essentially hunter's tea in Austrian. 
Presumably this is because after a long harrowing hunt, it's pleasant to warm up with a comforting spicy whiny brew, and not because the Austrians endorse consuming uppers and downers before brandishing firearms. One interesting thread to follow here is that rum is extremely popular in the German-speaking world. If you go back to my interview with Brett Steigerwald, you'll learn about the importance of rum verschnitt in the early parts of the 20th century. So it's not a complete surprise to me to see a spice or flavored rum product popping up in a traditional Austrian drink. So, now that you've got a new winter warmer to try when the weather does eventually get its act together and the snowflakes begin to fly, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this roving, wanderlustrious conversation with Devin Trevathan of Liebe Spirits, some of the topics we discuss include why Devin has chosen to cultivate a welcoming and mindful relationship with discomfort while traveling, and how this has allowed her to become a sponge for the sights, flavors, and sensations that make different cultures and destinations unique. A working definition of nomadic distilling, which forgoes stability and a permanent facility in favor of flexibility, and the ability to sample widely from multiple ingredient streams and spirits categories. Devin's thoughts on the notion of terroir, spoiler alert, she don't like it, and the ability to celebrate and mash up different spirits traditions from around the world by embracing the role of the guest or outsider. Then, of course, we explore the Liba spirits portfolio, including a Tyrolean gin from the Dolomites, a botanical rum from New Orleans, and a first-of-its-kind American aperitivo made with the bourbon base. Along the way, we explore the perplexingly cozy lunch habits of Austrians, wax poetic on the flavor of green ants, explain why cold brew deserves a place in your next Americano spritz, and much, much more. When I think of Devin and her journey through the spirits universe and through the many literal landscapes and cityscapes of the world, I'm reminded of the Japanese poet Matsuo Basho's travelogue, Narrow Road to the Interior. It's a haibun, Narrative paragraphs of prose interspersed occasionally by haiku, written on the road as a kind of poetic encapsulation of certain moments and feelings. If it's true that every dram or cocktail is a kind of trip that we take in our minds when we sip on chemicals and flavor compounds that call out to us from the places and cultures where they were conceived, then I can think of no more sacred and poetic duty than to roam the world looking for those flavors and bottling and sharing them whenever possible. With that, please enjoy this truly eye-opening conversation with Devin Trevathan of Liba Spirits. Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. So for our listeners, uh, how about you just kick this off by giving us a little intro to you. Who are you? What do you do? Sure. Um, my name is Devin Trevathan. I am the co-founder, co-owner, and operator of a company called Liba Spirits. It's a nomadic distilling company. Um, we're kind of a, a bit of a first of our kind in the way that we produce spirits. And formerly, I've been a bartender, a brand manager, a wine and retail specialist, 
worked in distilleries and also have written for distilling publications for the last couple of years too. So I've worked about every part of this business, really focusing on the distilled spirit side, but also a lot of hospitality as well. Well, one of the things I like on this podcast is to talk to specialists, but I myself am more of a generalist. So it's it's good to uh, good to also take some time and uh, chat with like-minded people who also end up wearing many hats within the industry. So we've got a lot to talk about with Liba Spirits and yes. with this, you know, kind of first of its kind, first of its like kind of methods approach to putting out spirits to the world. But I want to start in a non distilling vein, which is to ask you about travel and if spirits and booze and visiting distilleries was just completely out of the picture. Let's imagine that you're just going on a trip to somewhere that you're excited about. Yes. What are some of your favorite parts of travel, whether it's the actual transit or the getting there or the exploration? Like, what are some of the feelings that make you such a travel bug? I think that this will make sense, but I really actually love the discomfort of travel. Uh, it takes you so far out of your comfort zone immediately. You you land somewhere and you if it's especially the first time you've been there, you don't know the area. I mean, you can maybe look at maps, but that's different than like the intimate knowing of living in a place. You are unaware of potentially the customs. You don't necessarily speak the language. You can't quite read road signs and, you know, nothing is familiar to you. And I, I do genuinely love that feeling because to me, it, forces me to be so present in that moment and to be there and to really focus on all that I'm doing, it has created the strongest memories. I think probably throughout my life, my strongest memories are really related to travel. And I, I kind of made it a habit, not a habit, I made it a, a very kind of goal of mine to spend longer periods of time in places. Because I think three days, easy, you know, you're still going to feel that, that twinge of discomfort, but you'll probably have worked out those three days and, and planned them pretty much to completion and, and you'll just be doing that, executing that plan. A week gets a little bit more fluid. You have a bit more time to explore, but being in a place for like a month to three months to six months, that's a lot more time. You really have to settle in. There's going to be creeping senses of loneliness and a little bit of probably fear. And you're going to feel very disconnected from your home and you will appreciate your home even more for that reason. And so I, I did that a couple of times when I was young, when I was 19, I spent six months living in Italy. I was in college at the time. My major, which was psychology did not offer a study abroad. So I just decided to take my courses online for a semester and go work as an au pair and live with a family in Milan, Italy, which was an amazing experience, but it was, you know, challenging and scary and I had to go find friends and it wasn't so easy as my life had been. And so it was a, it was a very stark experience. There was times where I was really sad and homesick and felt like I'd made a giant mistake, even though, you know, six months is not that much time, but when you're that young, it just feels like forever. But forced me to kind of push through. And I think it made me a better person for it. So that sense, that sense of initial discomfort and kind of moving through that to find comfort 
I think is a really important emotion. It's something that I, I definitely still chase at times. Interesting. Yeah. I, I like the notion of moving through discomfort because I mean, I mean, when I asked you what, you know, what your favorite parts about traveling are, I, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting you to say, well, the, the discomfort, um, the hard parts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, also just like meeting different, you know, meeting people from truly culturally different backgrounds is amazing. And I do love the food and the beverage side of travel so much. I think that that is one of the best places or the, one of the best ways to like touch down with a place. But the sensation that I will always remember is feeling scared and uncomfortable and like getting comfortable with that feeling. And I think it's, it's made me more adaptable in my life here and wherever I am. Basically Mm. it really made me, I actually was talking to somebody last night about Ubers and they were talking about like Uber black, which is I guess like a higher end Uber car and how they're, benefits to it and they like i don't know they they check the the drivers have kind of a more rigorous standard they have to meet to get that and i just realized like if you have been in other countries and taken the most sketchy taxi driven by a guy who doesn't speak a word of the same language that you speak and you're just kind of going on hope and a dream the whole concept of uber is already so it feels so safe and it feels so uh, almost luxurious. And so to even get to another level of luxury and have something that's even higher end and, and the driver is more vetted and the inside of the car is more luxury. It's, it just feels like I'm glad that I still feel like that is a luxury mm. and it's something that I can like aspire to, to, to grow towards. Cause I'm not paying that crazy premium on every Uber I take. No way. Sure. Uh, I think it's interesting uh, to me, some of the things that you're saying uh, speak toward creating a wider lens, a larger map of contexts and terrains and stuff like that. And I think one of the one of the touch points for me in that sort of thinking is um, I, I have a poetry background and w- what um, one of my teachers used to refer to that as is going up and down the register. So the top of the register is, you know, Uber black, Uber XL, you know, you've got Escalades and all whatever the, the, the big black SUVs are the pulling up to, and then, you know, champagne service in the back or whatever. And then yeah. the absolute bottom of that is, you know, some person in a third world country who rolls up on a, you know, on a, a moped, it's, you know, smoking out the back and says hop on. Right. So uh, there's, there's, there's charms in all of that, but I think that, you know, tying it back to the notion of travel, I think one of the things that's great about travel is that we, we do tend to live within fairly narrow ranges of a, a given register. We yes. walk out our doors, our daily look lives. similar. Yeah. Right. So, and, and so I think that some of the, uh, yeah. So, so getting out of your own register, is uncomfortable, but yes. it can also be delightful because yes. you can start pairing and juxtaposing things that don't necessarily always make sense to everybody. Yeah. And that's thrilling and exciting. Spectrums of experience. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you now transition us to Liba Spirits? Give us a little intro to what Liba Spirits is, and maybe we can tie that into your you know sense of adventure and travel. For sure. I think so having those kind of moments where, or, or experiences where I spent 
greater periods of time in a place and really tried to understand it better, spending that chunk of time in Italy. And then right after college, I spent a year living in Taipei, Taiwan, which is amazing and continue to take trips. I just, I fell in love with, you know, spending time in different places and all of its own unique elements and idiosyncrasies. And so coming back to America, I moved to Nashville and I got a job working at Corsair, kind of as on a fluke. Um, I got a job working in a restaurant and one of the people that would kind of come into the restaurant all the time was this girl who was dating a bartender and she and I would just chat. She was really lovely. She's still a friend to this day. The bartender did what bartenders do and cheated on her and she was mad at him and decided to move finally across the country and it was a great story for her. But she left a job at Corsair. She was working at Corsair. And right before she left, she asked me to apply because she just thought that I would be a good fit personality-wise. And I did at the time have a little bit of experience with beverage alcohol production in the United States, only in the sense that when I was in college, I worked at a uh, mellow mushroom, actually. But the mellow mushrooms, like still probably to this day, but back in the day, that was kind of the spot if you were into craft beer. So before... I was even of drinking age. I was really expected to know the differences. We had like 27 taps. I needed to know those beers to sell them. And so I got into the craft beer production and that showed me kind of that, yes, beer is one element, but within this category, there's all this differentiation and and unique kind of styles of production that create these very different beverages and people love that and they geek out on that. And it's something that I connected to. And so I thought I was interested in beer production and brewing and then Corsair at the time was still, they had like a little five barrel brewing system. So she was like, well, this is a distillery, but if you're interested in brewing, you might, you know, come on board, learn about it, learn about distillation, see what happens. And then I, I got the job and I just totally fell in love with distillation. I thought, man, here is a, a study, a science that is everything that I'm interested naturally in, you know, it's history it's culture, it's place, it's travel related. It's, it's, it's very geographically linked. It is community, it's hospitality. And I think that that, if I could think about two things that have run through my life and, and brought me to starting Liba, which is a nomadic distilling company, I think it's interest in both travel, but also hospitality. Those two things are like what I've always loved. And distilling was just such a great world to step into if those are natural interests. So I worked in that distillery for a while and then I just kind of fell fully into the distilling industry, worked all these different gigs. And finally, at one point, I took a trip with my business partner to Australia of all places and kind of like on a whim, just meeting these Australian distillers who were cool. And they were like, come to Australia. We'll show you a good time. Come visit our distilleries. And we're like, well, Okay. Yeah. You don't have to ask me twice. Um, So we went to Australia and we got to try, it was very nascent. It still kind of is a very young distilling industry, but we got to try. It's young, but it's big. It's young, but it's, and it's growing and it is growing despite some true hardships because their tax system on distilled spirits is Mm -hmm. crazy. Very prohibitive. Bananas. Bananas. They're paying like $28 per bottle in tax, which is nuts. So we went there and it was just, it was amazing to see all these people who are really, really passionate, obviously to pay that much money in tax per bottle, you have to be pretty passionate about what you're doing. And they were using really beautiful and interesting flora and fauna 
in their distillations because everybody kind of was at that phase where they were doing gin, a lot of gin, a lot of like lesser age spirits, and then some whiskeys as well. I mean, Australia and kind of Tasmania, especially within Australia, is very well known for their whiskeys now. And they were back then too. Um, and we just loved the regionality, like all of these different, I had a gin that had green ants used in the distillation. I don't think it's made anymore, but it was made at formerly Adelaide Hills distillery. Now I think 78 degrees distillery, they used actual green ants that they, they kind of harvested from the middle of Australia, the bush. And they used it in the distillation because it had a character almost like kefir lime, like a, a very um, citrusy lime character. And then they would also include some of the ants in the bottle as well. Yes. Is that, that's it. Wait. Yeah. yeah. Is that in your phone? Yeah. yeah. I got to, I, I, I did a gin class uh, this oh past my God, with October. Gary? Yeah. Yeah. With Gary. And, Love Gary. Uh, and you telling uh, me about that. Yeah, class. so we were uh, we were we got to taste the uh, the various ant gins and stuff like that. So yes, <clears throat> okay, yep, and yeah. So then I found out after going there and trying that one ant green ant gin that there were other ant gins and there are people all over the world using. It. And so it just it really illustrated to us how you could take all of these categories that you know so well and you can make something quite different just by going to a new place which sounds obvious but that was like a, a real aha moment so that paired with just kind of a a little bit of youthful hubris um convinced my business partner and i to start a company when we were very young and very underfunded and then mm. a pandemic hit. <laughs> so the timing was, I mean, like, not not the best. Not the best, but we're still here. We're still trucking. And so we started Liba Spirits, where we distill, we call it nomadic distilling. It has been called other things in the past. Gypsy distilling is probably the best known term, but gypsy is a slur. So we decided to step away from that, and we felt like, Nomadic was a pretty good encapsulation of what we do. We go to different places around the world. We make all of our spirits in a different location. And we literally go there. We spend time there. And we do the distillations. We just rent space on a still on systems that belong to other people. So that we can make spirits that have kind of a sense of place. And are all very influenced by the places where we made them in different ways. Yeah. Well, I th and I think that's obviously very different than the model that most people think of when they think of a distillery or spirits brand. You, mo most people don't realize that spirits can just be contract distilled and they can just materialize on liquor store and bar shelves without the people who, you know, sell them actually having any connection to the people who make them. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I kind of constantly underestimate the... And this is not a dig, but just the the lack of foundational knowledge about this industry that the layperson has. It's just not really there, not for anybody's fault, but it's just not there. Well, and so I think that sort of should prompt us to dig in a little bit more to the nuts and bolts. So could you use maybe your first spirit as a case study to kind of 
walk people through step by step the process that you went through to create it so that they understand. And that includes also like getting it back to the US and selling it because I think easy enough to conceptualize somebody like renting time on a still fine. Yeah. But like, all right, now you got it. Like, how are people getting it? Especially if like your first spirit, it didn't get made here in the US. Yes. Yeah. The, the getting it back and selling it part was inarguably the harder part of the entire process, the more time consuming part. Um, so yeah, so our first spirit, we made three spirits so far. Our first spirit that we made is a gin that we distilled in the Austrian Alps at a distillery that has been, it's a, it's an orchard distillery property. It's, it's in the Alps in Southern Austria. It has been in the same family since 1643. So for that reason, we call our gin 1643 Alpine gin. And it, the property distillery is called Kunz. Uh, it is family own, family run. And we just kind of had a connection to the people there. Um, and they very kindly allowed us to come and use their, their stills and, and enter into their space, which I think is so exceptionally kind. I'm very grateful for everybody who allows us to do that. Uh, so we knew that obviously there's all these big considerations when you're starting to get into distilled spirits, one of the biggest ones is what is the first spirit that you're going to release? Are you going to make something that likely has to be unaged or has very little age? Or are you going to acquire something that somebody else made that has age, but is more kind of the direction you want to go in and you're just going to use something that's sourced until you have your own stock to to sell? We knowing going into this process, we always wanted to make the spirits ourselves. And when I say me, it's just me and my business partner, Colton Weinstein. I can't believe it's taken me this long to mention him. I'm a terrible business partner, but he's my business partner, co-founder, co-owner. It's, it's me and him. Um, so Colton, I knew always that we wanted to distill because that's kind of, we didn't have a lot going for us when we started. One of the only things we really had was our experience. So we could, we could trade on that, on the fact that we can actually distill ourselves. So gin was already kind of in the running. And of course we'd had this experience in Australia where we tasted all these amazing gins and it was, it did change the way that I thought about gin. I didn't even have a bad feeling about gin. I didn't have, uh, as opposed to a lot of people, I've always liked gin. I've always appreciated it, but it really showed me that gin is one of those spirits where you can see it all across the entire world and all of its, its many variations. So we knew kind of going in that we'd be making a gin and obviously we were not aging it. So that was helpful as well. So we went there and, you know, I, I hesitate, obviously the first kind of, or one of the first few questions we get is about the whole concept of terroir. Um, I hesitate to use that word. It's a loaded word. It is a wine term. Um, and it kind of has, I mean, it does have a definition, at, at times, I think people expect something very specific. If you say that you were making something with terroir that I wasn't sure we were always going to be delivering on. So I don't really use terroir as much. I use sense of place more. I want to like connect it to place, sense of that place, you know. Um, so when we were making this gin, we knew we wanted it to have a sense of this place. And we were in this really beautiful location. You know, the the Alps are obviously a huge mountain range, but between the, the peaks, there are valleys that are really 
verdant and have great agriculture. I kind of feel like it's Alpine, but we ended up getting um, these fresh Italian lemons and oranges from Verona, Italy. And we also got a fresh Italian juniper to use. And all of that is very impactful in the gin that we made, very much present. And so I almost sometimes feel like, and we use some fresh rosemary from Austria and a fresh Austrian ginger and all of the rest of the, the kind of spices that we got and dried botanicals were all from a local supplier to the area that we were. So between that Austrian influence and the Italian influence, I almost sometimes kind of refer to this as a Tyrolean gin because the Tyrol is this region in Southern Austria, Northern Italy. It stretches, I think, across a couple other countries in Europe. And it's a beautiful agricultural region. It really is indicative of its place. Not a lot of people in America think about it or know about it necessarily, but I would say that that's kind of the influence of this gin. Um, And then, so the fresh Italian citrus, the fresh Italian juniper, the, you know, we went and got all of this in Italy. We were like driving through these insane mountain roads, uh, going, you know, over the Dolomites and grabbing, you know, filling an entire van full of citrus. Brought it back, did the distillation. We, the base of our gin, our Austrian gin is mostly an Austrian wheat based neutral, like a locally sourced neutral. But we included a portion, a not insignificant portion of spirit made from a wild apple that literally grows on the property that we were distilling on. So very, very connected to place. Very, and, and it was just like, it was a beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful gin. It's a beautiful spirit. All of those ingredients that we sourced were incredible quality. Most gorgeous citrus I've ever handled in my entire life. And it was just really special. And, but we brought that back. So the process of getting it back, uh, we left it there. We trusted the folks at the distillery to slowly proof it down for us over time. Cause that was kind of the longest actual thing. We also had to kind of wrap up and uh, cut back to the United States a little bit early because we had landed in Austria on February 17th, 2020. And obviously, ah, yeah. yes, timing. Timing was not on our side necessarily. We got back to the United States the day before they stopped allowing flights from Europe back in. Nice. So it was nice. crazy. It was chaos. Wow. Yeah, well, and I, I mean... I think it's interesting about the proofing down slowly too, because, you know, uh, a, a lot of people don't think about that with clear spirits. Um, you know, a lot of distillers do resting and slow proofing and you got a lot of oily stuff in there yes. with the citrus and the fresh juniper and the rosemary and all that stuff. So it's definitely something that Lushing bears was a problem. slow proofing. Yeah. Yeah. When we were doing all of our test batches, the luching, the, the kind of hazy particulate that becomes like this opalescent haze in your spirit. And it usually happens on account of oils. And so sometimes it's intentional. Like you can force it when you do like a pour over with absinthe because it's very oily. But we had some luching in the bottle or in the the tests that we were doing of the gin. And we were like, nah, it's not going to work. So we'd be very, very careful about time and temperature as we were proofing down the gin to make sure that nothing, no particular, it was forced out of suspension. Yeah. So we 
yeah, there was, there was considerations. And I mean, thankfully that is a big part of this whole process and, and our, our business is that it is not a collaboration. I, we don't expect anything from the people who own the distilleries that we're working out of. We don't expect them to put any money up. They don't need to market it. They can talk about it as much or as little as they want. It's really just a passive bit of income, but if they want to be part of the conversation, if they, you know, we're, we're making this stuff, we're going to be throwing samples their way, the whole process. Cause the more noses on whatever we're making, the better I want as much feedback as I can. So we do encourage that part of like a kind of element of camaraderie, very open discussion. And for that reason and for other reasons, we kind of have it as a rule that we only approach distilleries that are run by people who make spirits that if we don't like them, we at least respect them. Cause we want to be, you know, working with and surrounded by people who we feel like are actively part of this business. They know what they're doing to some degree. And also if there's something that we need, you know, like we need them to slow proof down a gin for us while we run back to America before it turns us away because of a global pandemic, we want to know that they can, can do that. And so it's, it's part of the, our whole ethos with the business is to try to work with people that we like and respect. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. This episode is brought to you by direct fire consulting. This is my brand new venture for 2024. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to introduce you to this new project and the kinds of people I'll be partnering with as I build out the portfolio. I don't talk about it much on the podcast, but over the past couple of years, I've helped several bar programs here in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in the Mid-Atlantic to get their beverage programs up and running. We all know that bars and restaurants require a great deal of regulatory and facilities-related oversight, which means that the fine details of the beverage program sometimes fall through the cracks when you're simply trying to get the doors open at a new establishment. So if you'd like a helping hand on anything from drink development to menu design to staff recruitment and training, Direct Fire Consulting is here to help. I've spent the last decade of my life enjoying and partnering with the best beverage programs here in Washington, D.C. and beyond, and I'm excited to put that knowledge to work for you. Visit directfireconsulting.com or reach out to me personally to learn more. Now back to the show. So we'll definitely get to your other products, yes. uh, but I think I think it's this is a nice time to pause and speak a little bit more about that concept that you mentioned, terroir. Yes, because you know you go to Austria to make your first product. <laughs> well, okay, you're in Europe. Europe is sort of the birthplace of terroir as we think about it. And every country, Austria, Italy, France, Germany, we all have our own geographical indications and protected denominations of origin that stipulate things not only about process and sourcing, but also about geography. And so Europe does seem to me to be this place where invisible lines were born, where when you're on this side, you're in, you know, some backwards ass grape vineyard and oh, you step over the line and suddenly you're in Champagne, you know, yes, like, you're, exactly. you're, you know, you're Blanc There's de Blanc, wall. Blanc de Noir and yeah. great, right? And it's a matter of three feet. So it is shocking how small those spaces really are when you, yeah, when yeah. you get there, you're like, oh, wow, it's just right this right here. Yeah. 
Yeah. To me, a risk of what you're doing would seem to be, and maybe this is just me throwing a straw man risk at you, but like. Throw it, do it. I mean, like, there's a little bit of potentially cultural appropriation going on here. I mean, you just waltz into Austria and decide you're going to make, like, a, a Tyrolean gin and bring it back to the U.S.? Oh, oh, well, la-di-da, right? Well, so, like, yeah. I mean, first, I don't, I don't think I've ever waltzed. I'm not that, that <laughs> <laughs> elegant a person. But, yes, absolutely, there is a risk. And that is a very, very reasonable, logical question to throw our way. It's a big consideration. And I think over time, I've obviously, I've been asked this and I've thought about it a lot. What we've done from the beginning and what we will always continue to do is to, you not to like just perfectly rip off an existing spirit. We're not, we tend to go places and really try to learn about the history, the distillation, the practices, the traditions, but then we want to apply our own lens. We want to apply, we want to filter it through our own lens so that it feels very much still like something that we have made and not something that we took so much from this place. We didn't go there. We didn't like find something and just take it. I really feel like all the spirits we make, we went there, we created something and we brought it back or we, you know, brought some of it back. And that's really important to me. And I think that's kind of the process that I, or the part of the process that I'm most proud of and I will most often try to highlight when people ask this very reasonable question is that I, it doesn't feel like we're just taking it and not showing any appreciation because we're really open about what we're doing and we are very appreciative of, I mean, this all comes from a love of distillation at its its finest. It's at its best. Distillation is representative of the ingredients used to make that spirit. A lot of people don't necessarily respect the ingredients in their process. Um, and also to that end, we don't use any type of flavor, no artificial, no natural flavors. Everything is real whole ingredients. And I think that's important as well, is that everything is is a illustration of the place that it came from. So am I convinced that we're doing it perfectly and that we are totally, you know, um, just skating by any accusations of any kind of cultural? I mean, I think cultural appropriation probably we're pretty clear because it is it, they're different spirits. But I think it's really good to think about. We're, we're at least at the very base, we are using a, an industry or a local industry built up by others, and we are capitalizing on that. But I hope that in exchange, we are bringing much needed attention to that place and making people aware of it. When you travel, and this, this could be distillery related or not, do you ever get into situations where you notice something or you're amazed by something and or you're you know, captivated by some small detail or some aspect of everyday life that seems like really mundane to the people where they're like oh that's interesting to you that's just like that's just noise to us that like we don't even see that <laughs> yeah i mean absolutely for sure the um the gin production 
and living in Austria, that was just like next level. Their, their lifestyle, their, the way that they live their lives is incredible because they eat amazing food, hand, like made by hand, homemade food every single day. And they all, the whole entire distillery, which is a family-run distillery, but there's quite a few people who work there. Every single person breaks and eats lunch together at a big table every single day. Every single day. All together. Nobody's at their desks. Everybody is at the table. Nobody has phones. Nobody has computers. They spend time. They spend that time at least together every single day and they eat amazing food. And then two hours later, they break again and they have coffee and they have some kind of gorgeous, rich, decadent dessert every single day. And of course, they are also very trim and all. They seem very healthy and yeah. totally burn it off, but they have very late dinners too. But yeah, just, just seeing that was, you know, I don't know. I loved that. That was beautiful. It was like such connection and such appreciation for good food and and you know conversation daily which is really nice so to me this is important and that's why maybe i identified the appropriation question as a bit of a straw man because to me it's a straw man i think listen i'm half polish come and appropriate this shit out of that cuisine like please somebody come and fix it like i'm not gonna say anything please appropriate my cuisine and make it a little bit better the other half's not much better it's french canadian so there's a little bit of french influence in there but there's a lot lot of of canadian yeah a lot of potatoes and pork Come uh, on, somebody, poutine. somebody, welcome into my cultures. Uh, yeah. Take it, appropriate it, please. I, it. I, I'd like Refine to see what it. you do. So that's my that's my stance on like I guess specifically food and drink, quote unquote, appropriation. But more importantly, I think the role of the visitor or the outsider, which is you know you referenced earlier, hospitality. Hospitality yes. involves Hospitality. outsiders, like taking outsiders onto the inside is literally the the whole script of hospitality. But I think that's important to the definitions process because, you know, going back to these protected geographic indications, production style denominations of origin, I think it's very easy to start looking at those as bullet points or as rules and sub rules just on a written page and as boundaries drawn on an abstract political map when really there are spaces that you can enter and landscapes that you can observe and, and interact with. And to me, I don't know, that, that observer and translator and ambassador aspect of what you're doing is is way more interesting to me then maybe not then the places, but it's interesting to me in that it seems like the role of Liba Spirits is is that of translation and as being being almost like the lens through which we view these. Very much so. I, I hope that that is what we're doing and doing in a, a very successful and respectful way. I think that we, you know, the further we've gotten into this business and, and just the further I've gotten into actually producing spirits, uh, the less interested I am in really adhering to very strict categorical designations. There are a lot of people who are doing that very successfully. There are a lot of really great examples of anything that you can imagine now. And I don't 
necessarily find that kind of the most exciting places to to play in for for production anymore. You know, I'm I'm not. I maybe at some point when we were first starting this business, I thought, oh, how cool to like go to France and make a true Armagnac and just have it be so reflective of that place and really do it in the traditional sense. And I still think that's a beautiful spirit. And I still hope that people are somehow finding that Armagnac exists and seeking it out in America. But now I feel like, oh, let me go and maybe make something sort of in that style, but change something about it. And, you know, it'll be hopefully, yeah, people see that it's, it is a translated experience. It is, it involves us as much as it involves the place itself. And -hmm. I think that that is kind of our, that's our whole ethos is place, but with a a heavy influence of our taste, what we're experiencing there. Cause I want it to feel kind of like a, a travel journal or a travel diary in liquid form. Like it, it is influenced by our perspective as much it is as it is the places that we're going. And I really want the places that we're going and where we are to shine through. But I want people to know that this isn't just all you'll find there. There's so much more to still discover. Maybe this is a way in, but then you've landed in this place and now you can look around. There's so much more to, to explore. Yeah. It's very, uh, very travelogy. Uh, if you <laughs> haven't read uh, Matsuo Basho's Narrow Road to the Interior, I think that would be a, an interesting, interesting thing for you to check out, especially I considering haven't. that the specific style that it's written in is very like what you do, which is go to a place and then you write a haiku, go to a place. Yes. Make a spirit. So check that out if you haven't already. But uh, why don't you tell us now about... Um, Botanical gin, uh, sorry, botanical rum. Yes. And uh, bourbon based aperitif. Yeah. So we talked about the gin, kind of wrapping that up. When I brought it back to the United States and started to sell it, there was so much story there. We'd really taken, you know, an, a lot of effort to make something that was so connected. And we had all of these touch points that drove it into the ground in these different places in Austria and Italy. And I came back to the United States. And I started to sell it and I started to take it around and it was just, it was so hard to get all the way through that story. It's really hard to get people to, you know, there was so much there, there. Not only are we distillers, we're making a spirit, but we're making a spirit nomadically. And what is that? And we have to, so there was a lot of education and that's not a bad thing, but we thought, okay, so when we go to make, we're going to make our second spirit. We know we're making a spirit in New Orleans, a city that is truly unlike anywhere else in the United States or in the world. We're going to make a rum naturally because Louisiana has sugarcane. It's one of the few states in the United States that does. But how do we continue, you know, exploring this whole sense of place element in this next spirit? So with the botanical rum, Lafcadio or botanical rum, we decided, so we made a rum base, distilled a rum base ourselves in New Orleans that is from Louisiana. It's a molasses made from Louisiana sugarcane juice. Molasses is a byproduct of the sugar refining process. We did kind of considering that New Orleans is this is very French-influenced country or city. Um, we thought about looking for fresh sugarcane juice 
to distill since that is like the hallmark of agricultural style, agricultural rums. But if you want to see a very kind of good old boy industry, <laughs> look at the sugar industry in Louisiana. It was just like a woman and a Jewish man from New York trying to call all of these sugar, these plantations, these, these sugar fields and get fresh pressed sugar cane juice. It's very hard. It was really, really hard to, to get anywhere. But then we found this, this molasses and we really loved the character and we knew we could do something amazing with that. So we went with the molasses, but we wanted to make this a spirit truly connected to New Orleans, not just Louisiana, because New Orleans is a very special place. So we were looking at all of, started looking at all these elements of New Orleans that are, are iconic, identifiable, and uh, naturally food, their cuisine came up, and we started looking over all of these different classic recipes, and we found Bay leaf is in everything and peppercorn is in everything, you know, foundational to their flavors, bay leaf and peppercorn. So we decided to infuse bay leaf and peppercorn into the rum with some other elements to kind of balance that out and, and find harmony, but also keep the base rum very flavorful, which would be part of botanical rum as a category, a subcategory, which was growing at the time, kind of still is. And I'd had some botanical rums already that were really neutral. The, the rum part was, and we didn't want to do that. We still wanted a lot of rum. So we just kind of took this rum that we distilled and built extra flavor on it to make it into this botanical rum really inspired by and steeped in New Orleans. And I feel like if you taste it, it speaks to New Orleans in a lot of very kind of subtle, but some very over the head top over the top of the head type of like hit you over the top of the head type of ways. It is a super aromatic spirit, like jumps out of the glass at you in New Orleans. Famously, you can walk around with cocktails. I wanted a spirit that you could walk around. That city is smelly. If you've been there in the summer, especially <laughs> like it is a, it is a dirty, delicious, but dirty city. And is it there smells an event every summer that, that would, that draws a lot of people down there for booze. The people, in the summertime and the trash coupled with the trash <clears throat> yeah. on the streets and the, you know, piss that's left there by so many drunken tourists just creates a very heady aroma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very new Orleans. Yeah, and can, to like, match that, yes, to match yeah. that takes some serious aromatics. And I feel like our rum does that, which I am very proud of, but it was a different kind of, I think a very different way of interpreting place into that spirit versus the gin that we'd made. Cause it wasn't necessarily all about everything coming from new Orleans, but really there being a flavor that is very tied to new Orleans. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, even there, there's even a little bit of um, what I think is, is kind of a smart genre bending impulse in the way that you set it up too, because you didn't just make a botanical rum that was like a cane based, gin and you didn't make a heavy sweetened you know sticky um christmas spiced rum you yeah. kind of went to the middle in yes. a place where there wasn't a lot else doing that so we kind of yeah um, yeah went like right that. through the the eye on that one it was i mean like i i love that spirit it's so polarizing that is a spirit for sure out of our three that I mean, all of our spirits are kind of polarizing, but that spirit is so polarizing. Some people 
fucking love it. Sorry if I'm not allowed to curse. Some people love it and <laughs> some people hate it and they tell me um, right to my face. But I love that it's so strong in flavor and I love that it comes through so hard in cocktails because New Orleans is a cocktail town and I think it adds, it brings something to the cocktails. It brings something new and it's, it's kind of, you know, it's very savory rum, it's dry finish. And I, I like that flavor. I like exploring that kind of flavor in spirits. I think that there's a real future for it that we're seeing already kind of teased out now, but I'm sure there's going to be more and more of that going forward. So yeah, I, I loved that kind of interpretation of place with that spirit. So gin, you know, kind of very classically place driven the rum, we were switching things up. And then our third spirit, uh, a bourbon based aperitivo that we make here in Nashville, where I live is very much kind of the final, I, it just, it feels like a very evolved product out of considering that whole concept and turning over in our minds, what it means to be a place driven spirit, but it also, and very, uh, intentionally. So we, it was something that we wanted to make that was going to be new that people hadn't experienced before and really ever. I, I mean, I haven't done all the research in the world, but I've never found a bourbon based aperitivo, um, to have existed. And it kind of feels like, I mean, not an obvious choice, but it, it's, it wasn't too terribly complex of a way to innovate a category. And it really speaks to me, aperitivo really speaks to place in, in spirits and cocktails. That is like a place-driven category and concept because it's not just the spirit itself, it's the culture around it. Mm. So you've got these three products and we'll, we'll get into the Terrativo um, a little bit more in depth, but I mean, are you bringing them all to like a central warehouse location and selling them online? How are you managing inventory? Like what is what is the day-to-day -day side of this and the hopefully Devin makes some money side of this <laughs> thing look like? Still really hoping for that. Um, there is, so first off, we actually don't, uh, we don't have a DSP as Liba Spirits. We don't have a distilling okay. license, though the more formal kind of one. We technically are importers. That's mm -hmm. the license that we have. So, a lot of this is kind of like old school handshake deals type of thing because we are going into other people's distilleries, not as licensed distillers necessarily, quote unquote. It's not like very nefarious or anything, but our, our official designation as a company is that we import. So once we've gone there, we've actually done the distillation. We kind of package it together with the distillery that we're working out of as like a contract price. So we pay them like one flat price that has includes like the the raw materials the time and then our you know wrapped up is our our time spent using their system and then we purchase that bulk at a contract kind of price and our first so our first two spirits we brought the gin back from austria we worked with a company that basically handled the logistics and it was expensive but it was worth it. I did not want to worry about and figure out figuring out shipping gin across like trucking it across six countries and then shipping it over the ocean. So we just worked with somebody 
it arrived more or less on time. Again, this was post pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic. So shipping was across the board kind of complex and nightmarish. So it was not just us, uh, but it got there. And then we brought that to the distillery where we were making the rum in new Orleans and we bottled both of those. And the same company that handled our logistics also allowed us to basically start selling kind of self-distributing in four states, New York, California, Florida, and New Jersey. So we were like, great, we'll do it. Yeah, we'll, those we'll are start. good ones. Yeah, yeah, big ones, good ones. Um, self-distribution is not a fun uh, process. It's very hard. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it is, I mean, you know, distributors are not always just a walk in the park themselves either, but it's a really important relationship. And I will always suggest to people who are interest, interested in, in entering into this business that you should have it kind of in your mind's eye to get those distributors. But this is a great way to enter into things. And again, into these markets, this was, you know, we finally got, things kind of got stalled because of the pandemic. Um, but we finally started selling in 2022, at the beginning of 2022. And I was up in New York state at the time, uh, in the Finger Lakes. And so I could get started selling there right away. And that's what I did. And I just kind of targeted bigger cities around the Finger Lakes and, and had already, so we'd already made and bottled the gin and the rum at the distillery in New Orleans, made the gin in Austria, made the rum in New Orleans, brought the, uh, the gin over, bottled them both there in the middle of summer in a distillery that had no temperature control. <laughs> and that was, as you can expect, quite sweaty. Um, and so, yeah, we just, we just got started. So we, we kind of kept a portion there at the distillery. They kindly allowed us to, to store some of our spirits there. And then we shipped some, a good chunk up to New York and a bit out to California because we did a little bit of, of sales work out there. And that's kind of where our initial stock has been split. But once it came time to make our third spirit, our third spirit is kind of, I mean, we really like, I think quite, we really took time and took advantage of some things that were working uh, in our favor. One being that at that time, by the time uh, we started making this third spirit at the beginning of 2023. My business partner was also full-time managing a contract distillery that belongs to somebody else here in Nashville. So we had access to that facility and he had been making some high rye bourbon uh, from that was part of the, the contracts that they were doing. And so he was laying down bourbon of all different types and so we decided to use some of that. It was about like a year and some change old as the base for the aperitivo. And it still fit in with our whole concept of using spirits that we or, or distilling our own spirits and had a little bit of age on it, which was great because we didn't anticipate yeah. that happening. So what we've made there uh, here in Nashville, we've made at the Corsair facilities and we store everything here or send it up to New York. And now we also have distributors here in Tennessee and in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And so we sell 
send it out to all those states as well. Nice. Yeah. It's a it's, lot. Um, it's very complicated. It is complicated. Um, <laughs> it's not I, my favorite it, thing. It, it's, I, want, I wanted people to hear that because I think, what do we want to focus on? The sexy stuff, the flavors, the innovation, yes. the culture. The um, travel. But it is, it is, sometimes it's ugly getting, getting stuff done, getting, Big time. getting cases moved. As my friend Henry says, we get cases in, we got to get them out the door. And yeah, no, shipping glamorous. is um, a unfun process to navigate. It is not great working. And, you know, everybody's under dealing with a lot of stuff. It's hard to, to work with those shipping companies. And I, you know, I don't know what it is inside me exactly, but saying that I'm a distiller who travels around the world to distill spirits is such a fantastical title or description of a job. Everybody's like, Whoa your job must be amazing. And it is, and I love it so much, but it is also just a lot of just day-to-day running a company, which is unsexy most of the time. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Well, give us a little bit of flavor work on the, uh, the bourbon aperitivo. Um, how have you found that it works in cocktails? What are some of the flavors and some of the botanicals and the, the, you know, the aperitivo moves that you've done with that and how, how should people use it if they can get a bottle? Yeah, so Terrativo, our third spirit, our bourbon-based aperitivo, is pretty. It's a. It's pretty. It's a deviation um, for aperitivo, depending on what people expect. Um, for it to have that bourbon character, which is not always necessarily so obvious when it's in its just undiluted form, but once you start playing around with it in cocktails, it opens up and you really get that bourbon kind of depth. It's a little bit higher proof. It's 35%. Most are like 24 to 28%. Um, but that was important for us to have some of that, that identifiable bourbon character because we talk about it as a bourbon-based aperitivo. And then we made it in America. You know, there's, there's more and more aperitivos being made in the United States. Um, by far not a completely new concept. But there are people who had already done really great faithful interpretations of classic Italian aperitivo and they'd done a great job. Um, some of the distilleries in New York city, uh, some distilleries in the Midwest, people were, were releasing things that tasted, I think very comparable to, if not better than some of our classic Italian favorites like Campari and Aperol. So we were not feeling necessarily like we had to just create the Italian classic. We want it to really feel like an American made aperitivo. Um, cause the concept of aperitivo, right. is just infused and sweetened spirit with kind of herbs and barks and all of these fruits and things that grow on the ground. And that can be quite universal, I think. And I, I believe historically it grows out of medicinal spirit and infusions and herb, herbs and everything. So that was practiced all over the world. So I think aperitivo is also inherently kind of a global concept. And I felt like a true American aperitivo quite hadn't broken through. Um, and it also just felt like all this aperitivos out here, they're great. Most people who are doing them, the vast, vast majority are not distilling the base. They're using just a neutral base, which makes sense. Um, there's stability in that consistency, you likely won't see a lot of change of the flavors that you've created through infusion because it's kind of a blank canvas that you're working on. 
but we can distill. And I thought the concept of using a flavorful base just seemed so interesting to me and so obvious. And, and I really wanted to explore that. And then that's a fun way that I can make spirits of all kinds, all kinds of categories, and then just use that and build on those flavors. So when we started to consider the flavors that we were going to use in Terrativo, the first Terrativo, we decided to really look at flavors that are historically paired with bourbon because that's the base. So looking at all these classic bourbon recipes and, you know, trying, just doing our, our own samples and, and research and development, we really found like cherry and orange was an obvious choice because that's in, you know, every bourbon cocktail from here till the end of time, it will be. Um, and then having some of that depth from spice. So it's a high rye bourbon. There's always already some spice character in the base. And we decided to build on that with allspice and with cardamom. And then we wanted that kind of bitter, rich, bark, earthy kind of char character, and but not too much. We didn't want to make it too, too bitter because we wanted to have all of these other flavors stand out and, and be appreciable. But we also didn't want to make it too sweet. Um, so we used a combination of different barks, uh, cherry, not cherry bark, uh, gentian, cinchona bark, lovage root, and we use fresh rhubarb and also rhubarb root. And finding that balance of that kind of earthy, bitter flavor was amazing. I, I loved that process. It took a lot of time just working out and finding what would work best. Um, and then we really wanted to have some kind of, because we weren't going too, too bitter, we could also find something, an element like a tart high note element. And we were able to do that. And I'm really proud of that character actually. Uh, just the infusion of a tart cherry and using hibiscus. And that is actually mm. also the source mm -hmm. of the color of the uh, aperitivo. It's red, obviously, or it is red. And that is all, that all comes from the tart cherry and the hibiscus. Nice. So you asked about cocktails as well. Okay. Um, cocktail wise. I mean, it works well, I think in your classic red aperitivo cocktails. I think it crushes in a Negroni, but like a mezcal Negroni. And then I also think it's great in, um, something as simple as like an Americano, which I know isn't really here quite in the way that I, you know, I used to drink them in Italy and all the time and it doesn't quite made its way over here, which Basically, it's just red aperitivo, sweet vermouth, and club soda or soda water over a bunch of ice. But it's such a delicious cocktail. And it's really, like, vibrant and bright and low ABV and very drinkable. And then in a spritz with some kind of Prosecco or something, it's also delicious. Um, and I love it mixed up in more complicated co cocktails. I think it still comes through and adds something really good and delicious. And it's not quite as bitter. So I think, actually, that's benefit in some ways. You can use it a little bit more liberally in all different drinks and concoctions. Um, have, you, have you found it's um, perfect vermouth pairing uh, that would be available on like liquor store shelves fairly nationwide that somebody, you know, if they're like, Ooh, I'm going to pick up, up a bottle of this. I want to try the Americano. What yes. would you recommend for the vermouth? Honestly, um, I would say sweet vermouth wise, like just the Dolan sweet vermouth still does its thing. It, it is exactly what you need. Um, yep. I love, gosh, I'm going to forget exactly which one it is. 
The Lustau, I can't remember if it's the dry or the Blanc. I think it might be the Blanc vermouth mm -hmm. is really good. Love that with Terrativo because it's a bit more of that kind of bright character, bright vermouth character. And it's a bit fruity and it's really a lovely vermouth. It's really well made. That is a great pair for any any of your cocktails. I think like bringing in a dry or a blanc vermouth where a sweet vermouth is usually called for changes things in the best way sometimes. I really love that kind of variation on cocktails. My favorite drink to drink it in right now um, is a drink that I'm kind of calling, I'm still deciding exactly what the name is going to be. Either it's going to be an Americano Americano because it's <laughs> just a classic Americano cocktail, but you do one-to-one-to-one Terrativo sweet vermouth and then uh, cold brew concentrate. Mm -hmm. So there's coffee or I just, I usually just call it a coffee Americano, but sometimes people get confused because there's the Americano coffee. So yeah, cafe, cafe Americano. Cafe Americano. Uh, Americano cafe. No, that's still probably the coffee drink. I don't know. I know. I'm, not the, I'm not the person to ask on that. Need, um, I know. The, that the sounds, perfect name that is sounds, out there. That sounds like uh, perfect for a creative session after a, a boozy lunch. It is such a good cocktail for that like 4 to 7 p.m. drinking period of mm -hmm. time, which is typically that's, you know, I'm not... I'm not staying out too late anymore because I have to wake up kind of early and my dog will wake me up really early. So that's my time where I usually imbibe. And this is just the perfect cocktail. It's so good. And it's, I love an espresso martini, but I don't always want that um, like richness and I want it to be over ice and, and stay cold. And so this just still hits that coffee cocktail button that we all have now thanks to the espresso martini but it's really really like crisp and dry and refreshing the whole time yeah well those are good vermouth call outs good cocktail call outs um man uh very very exciting and thank you for sharing the whole journey from a to b to c and now the question becomes what is point d and beyond what now that we've got distribution up and running in a few states now that we've got a portfolio of spirits now yes. that we've got now that we know a guy who's in contract manufacturing i uh, know how are we gonna continue to move forward here either personally for yourself and your your own travel addiction and yes. or for liba spirits and its need to take over the world yeah i mean take over the world that, that would be fun just see the world would be really fun um <laughs> i i so because we started terrativo with this bourbon based version we kind of always had in the back of our minds the concept of doing this same thing in other places. So there will be more Terrativos coming out and it'll you know follow the same kind of formula, um, a base spirit that we make ourselves that is, is kind of an identifiable of a place type of base spirit and then building an aperitivo around it. It's not necessarily always going to be a bitter red. It's probably not going to be a bitter red. It's, it might go in different directions. But then also we've had the chance, I, I would like to focus more on potentially export to other places, mostly because I do want to go on more trips out of the country. I haven't been out of the country since we made the gin. And now that's been like four years. So it's, it's I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the bug. And we are also working now 
doing some consulting and kind of partnership with other people, which is a really fun and unexpected development. I, you know, we've been working Liba now for two years really consistently. And during that time, it's, it's just me and one business partner and we pretty much work unilaterally and we have not always lived in the same place. So getting to incorporate more of like a partnership collaborative thing with other people is so exciting. So we've got some stuff in the works. It's a little too early to get into specifics, but some really fun stuff kind of coming down the pipeline for us. And then, yeah, just expanding into new places, getting the opportunity to go to new cities and states and countries and, and kind of attempt to push Teratibo and Liba out is, is always my goal and my hope. Yeah. Amazing. Well, yeah. maybe we can, uh, maybe we can grab a bottle and get you featured on one of our new and noteworthy segments. And, oh, um, yes. yeah, so we'll, we'll talk offline about that, but do you have, um, time for a few quick lightning round questions? Yes, absolutely. All right. First one, desert Island scenario. You are stranded without prospect of rescue. Hmm. Um, you can interpret the rules of this however you want, Okay. <laughs> but uh, you get to pick one bottle of straight spirits and then one cocktail that you can either have, you know, in the Gilligan's Island style draft or that you have all the ingredients to make yourself. So what's your bottle? What's your cocktail? Jesus. Okay. My bottle of straight spirit that I would love to have um, because I love this spirit so much would be probably, you know, weirdly, um, what I was coming to my mind is this bourbon, which is so funny cause I'm not really necessarily a bourbon drinker, but it's called low gap bourbon. Um, hmm. I don't know if you know it. It is very, very small batch. Uh, it's made on like alembic style stills and it was just the most incredible fermentation of a majority corn base i'd ever tasted and it was aged as well obviously and it just had these crazy flavors of like coconut and tropical fruit mixed with your kind of classic butterscotch vanilla and stuff bourbon character and that was just so good that i would probably drink something like that oh maybe that or konamara uh, which is an Irish, a peated Irish whiskey. Um, mm -hmm. And then yeah. cocktail wise, I would probably do, hmm, I would probably do a spritz, honestly. It's good. It's just good. It's tasty. It's bubbly. I love sparkling wine and you can drink it pretty much at any time, day or night, and it still holds up. So a really good spritz would be so good on a desert island in the shade, I think, probably. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> All right, next question. What are a couple of destinations? So this could be a country, it could be a city, it could be a region that spans mm. several countries, like the Tyrolean gin that mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier. Um, what are a couple of places that are at the top of your travel list? My Mine personally is I yeah. want to get to Peru so bad. <sighs> Yes. I don't really care where. I just want to go and just leave vineyards without Hell Pisco yeah. in yes. my wake. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, I really, 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 I've never been as far south in South America, um, but I would love to go to like Chile and Argentina and Peru um, for the food, the drink, and obviously the natural beauty yeah. and culture. It's just, it's got it all. 
Um, I would love to go to, uh, hmm. I, Portugal is high on my list. I actually think probably because I can go there soon. I think it's a, it's doable. Um, and I've heard really amazing stuff about the, the beverage scene there right now. Um, and then I went to Australia not that long ago, but I didn't get to go to New Zealand. So I would love to go to New Zealand. Um, and when I was living in Asia, I never got to go to Vietnam. So I would really love to go back Ooh, oh yeah. and to hit some of the best places in Vietnam. And then while I'm there, go back and go to my favorite places in Asia. I'd love to go back to tai- Taiwan for a while. Such an amazing country. And to go back to Malaysia and Thailand and South Korea, it's, it's such an amazing place. So it's all of that plus also... Iceland and Green, like everywhere, everywhere is on my list. It's everywhere. Got it. Uh, if you could have a drink with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? Where would you, where would you have this uh, imaginary, fantastical drink experience? Ooh, um, I would love to go to Paris and get a drink with Eartha Kitt. Okay. She is just seems like such a badass and such an intriguing person. Uh, she seemed like such a badass and such an intriguing person and she lived a wild life and I love her music and I would just, I feel like she would just be a fucking ball to have a drink with and she would get you like really sloshed and take you to this cool little jazz club. And that's what I want so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Uh, final one here. You're a distiller. I'm sure you've got an answer to this. What's an unusual or controversial view or belief that you hold in the spirits and or cocktail world? Mm. Um, mm, most spirits don't need to be aged past like 10 years, particularly in new Oak in new Oak. I cannot see really a lot of value in the 15, 10, 15 plus year kind of category. I think that's crazy. That's already so much Oak flavor. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I think probably my most controversial. Some spirits are really good, completely unaged. My favorite rums tend to be zero age. I love the inherent character of rum. I think way too much Oak influence. Just it's too much for me. I don't like it. Yeah. Our oak forests are already in danger. Let's get off the oak wagon and, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. Give that I feel new you. growth time to become old growth. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Devin, um, what is the best way for people to share in the Libo Spirits journey? And uh, most importantly here, how do we get our hands on some of these bottles? Yes. Journey wise, I mean, we should always be doing more, but I, at least some, my, you know, I'm active on our social medias. So the Liba Spirits Instagram especially is at Liba, L-I-B-A, Spirits, spelled the traditional way. And then my own Instagram is at Dev Loves Bev. So D-E-V-L-O-B-E-S-B-E-V. Um, and then purchasing wise, we are listed on online retailers. Um, our Terrativo is listed on seal box, which is a kind of whiskey focused, more whiskey centric retailer who services a huge swath of States in the U S and then the gin 1643 Alpine gin 
and Lafcadio Botanical Rum. Oh, I should have said Lafcadio Hearn was the person that I would most want to have a drink with because he's the namesake of our rum, but he's on the list too. Uh, the gin and the rum are listed on the Curiata site. Curiata, Q, no, not Q, C-U-R-I-A-D-A.com. Um, and those have at times been out of stock, but should be uh, in stock right now. And then also, obviously, anybody who's interested and is not having... I don't know, finding, figuring out a way to find these spirits. Don't, you know, hesitate to message me directly or email me. I'm happy to help out. Cool. Well, we will have all that on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Devin, it was super fun to learn about the ins and outs of nomadic distilling and uh, the difference between terroir and sense of place and just your approach to uh, your lens into the world of spirits. And we do, in this case, mean an entire world. So thank you for your insights, your passion, and most importantly, for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I had a great time. Really appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you can do to help the show. One would be to rate and review this program anywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The more ratings and reviews we have, the easier it will be for other like-minded flavor nerds to enjoy the content that I produce. You can also follow the Modern Bar Cart YouTube channel, where I post video clips from the podcast and beyond, And you can join our growing Discord community, which is where our listeners submit questions for upcoming guests and chat about all kinds of fun spirits and cocktail shenanigans. It's also where I share fun perks and discounts that are too exclusive to blast out on the airwaves. To join our community Discord server or get in touch with me for any other reason, all you need to do is drop me a line by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and boozy adventures are just beginning. So remember, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, distilling and travel insights courtesy of Devin Trevathan of Liba Spirits, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Direct Fire Studios production, copyright 2024.